encourage you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 26 and 27, the passage Mike read from. Um, We're going to be looking at verse 26 and 27 as we continue in our series here in the book of Romans. A couple of things I wanted to mention. Tomorrow, um, a a number of you I know, but maybe not everybody knows that Bob Dorsey's dad passed away recently, and the funeral service tomorrow is at the Bradley Stowe Funeral Home at 11 o'clock tomorrow. Uh, There's a visitation prior to that, Uh, and if you need information on where that is, you can call the church office tomorrow morning. Also wanted you to know next Sunday we're having a baptism service. We celebrate baptisms in our morning services when we have them. We have a number of people that are getting baptized, always a a celebratory time, and uh, look forward to that season together. One other thing I wanted to mention, and Mike did a great job talking about the Common Life book. We are are really learning to do this. Uh, There's a team of people that are doing it. I think this one um, is better than the first one, and I can't wait for the third one. The third one is going to be uh, leading up towards Easter. The seven Sundays leading to Easter, we're going to be focusing on this. Each Sunday, we're going to be looking at uh, the events that took place that day, or a day. The first day will be Sunday. The second Sunday, we're going to look at Monday, Tuesday. The next Sunday, we're going to look at Wednesday. The next Sunday, we're going to look at Thursday, and so forth, all the way up to Easter Sunday. Each of those getting a a Sunday morning coverage. I don't know if you know this, but one half of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the events of the final week of Jesus' life. Uh, And we're we're going to try in this common life book. We're going to have maps of Jerusalem. We're going to have pictures of the temple. We're going to have various things trying to give you a chronological picture of some of the most famous teachings and actions of Jesus. You may not have any idea that they happened like three days before he died. It's it's a a powerful um, picture of that passion experience and really looking forward to that together, and we're going to have daily readings, almost like some people do Lenten readings. We're going to have daily readings related to those events that took place on that particular um, day of the week, of Passion Week. So once you finish the Romans one, we have that to look forward to. Uh, I'm going to take a few moments this morning to try to bring us up to speed with the book of Romans, because this book is so much a, a logical sequential treatise that I think it's important to just come back every now and then to get the the big picture snapshot. So I'm going to take about three minutes to do that, I hope. Um, Basically, the Apostle Paul has written the book of Romans, and the first thing he does in chapters one through six is talk about how a person can be uh, brought into an eternal relationship with God, literally how a person can be acceptable to God how he can be righteous or declared righteous or declared acceptable, how he, can have the val- how he or she can have the validating performance record to qualify to have relationship with God. And in Romans chapter 1 through 6, he presents two ways. In chapters 1 through 3, he says you can get this validating performance record on your own. It's how all of us try. It's our default methodology. We're all trying to be good enough, be faithful enough, be kind enough, at least compared to other people. You know, we, we, we outweigh other people, so maybe we'll make the grade, and maybe we'll have the val- validating performance record, but Paul conclu- concludes in Romans 3, verse 20, this statement, 
For by works of the law, no one will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He says, through our own efforts, none of us have the validating performance record to uh, have acceptance with God eternally or to qualify for heaven. But there's a second way he presents to us, and he tells us that we can do it not through our own efforts, but through the efforts of someone else. And that someone else is defined in chapter, 20, chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. And he says, but now there's another way of getting, becoming righteous or being declared acceptable. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. He said, on the basis of Jesus validating performance record of righteousness, his righteousness report card, if you will, living an entirely righteous life. He, first of all, dies in our place, receives the punishment for sin, which is, is death and separation from God. He died the death we should have died, but he also lived the life that we should have lived. And on the basis of his validating report card, if you will, of righteousness, when we place our faith in Christ and receive him as our Savior and substitute, we are offered acceptance with God. And Paul says we can be justified, declared righteous eternally. Then he says in chapter 7 and 8, he tells us how to live the Christian life. And he says there's two ways of doing that. You can live the Christian life First of all, now you have received Christ as your Savior, you're a member of his family, and you can live the Christian life in your own efforts. And Romans 7 is a description of Paul trying to do that, and Paul saying, here I am as a Christian, and what I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I do. And he's and I'm miserable. And he, and he says, it's not working. And then he comes to Romans chapter 8, and he says, there's a different way of doing life. It is in the the power of the Holy Spirit, and 22 times in Romans chapter 80, discusses the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that's really the series that we're in. We're looking at Romans chapter 8, the benefits of living life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's quickly look at here are some things that the Spirit brings to us in verses 1 through 4. He brings a new freedom. The Spirit liberates us from condemnation and control. 5 through 12, he gives us a new mind. The Spirit gives us a mind leading to life and peace. In verses 13 to 17, a new identity. The Spirit continually reminds us that we're God's children. Verse 18 to 25, we have a new destiny. The Spirit guarantees us this, this glorious future we looked at last Sunday. And this morning in verse 26 and 27, he is a new helper. The Spirit helps us in our prayers. In the same way is the opening phrase of Romans 8.26. And Paul is saying, just as the Spirit helps you to recognize, and by giving you, it says in verse 23, he gave you the first fruits, the, the trailer of the movie of your future. He shows us what you, just by getting a taste of what it means to, to, to not be completely dominated by sin, that your life can begin to change by the fruit of the Spirit. He says that's the way, that's just a trailer of what it's going to be like in the future when you are holistically changed by the power of Christ. And he says, with that future that all of creation's looking forward to as well as you are, he says you can handle the sufferings and hardships of this world. And he says in the same way the Spirit helps you to live in sufferings, he says now in verse 26 and 27, 
he also helps you in an intimate part of your relationship with God with prayer. And we're going to look at that today, and I'll tell you where I'm going in this message. First of all, what I'm going to do is try to unpack what this passage is actually saying, because it's a little confusing when you read the words. What is he actually saying? And then at the end, we're going to look at three vital principles regarding prayer. So let's look at that together. We're told here as we, as we look at this passage in verse 26 that the Spirit helps us. He does not replace us in prayer. He helps us when we are doing the work of prayer. I'd like to read verse 26 and 27. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the minds of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you to teach us today as we reflect on this passage. Thank you for giving us the Spirit. Thank you that we're not left to our own resources to figure out things and rely on our own intuition and even in our prayer lives. God, teach us from this, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. The Spirit helps us. He does not replace us in prayer. He helps us when we're doing the work of prayer. When you read this passage in verse 26, it can sound like the Spirit is helping in the same way that Tom Sawyer wanted help in his projects. If you've ever read Mark Twain's classic on Tom Sawyer, Tom Sawyer, one of the, one of the more interesting scenes is the time that Aunt Polly says to young Tom, and she's ticked off at him as usual, and and she says, you, I, I want you to paint the post. I want you to paint the fence. This is a, a, a fence that is a solid fence. It's nine feet tall and 90 feet long. It's a big fence for a young guy to have to paint. He's got his whitewash paint out there, and he's painting away. And a friend comes along named Ben. And Tom Sawyer is a strategic worker. And he wants help. And he, has, he, he designs help, and here's how he does it. His friend comes along, and Ben is sort of mocking him because she's working, and, but he just keeps concentrating on his painting. He's painting, he's painting along. And Ben says, and he's getting a little frustrated, so he says, well, I was going to ask you to go swimming, Tom, but I can see you're working. And Tom Sawyer's going, he says, well, if you want to call it work, I guess you can call it work, but not so to Tom Sawyer. He's just painting away on this thing, and the guy's, what do you mean it's not work? He says, wow, he gives him all this beautiful description of what he's doing, painting this Mona Lisa. And, and then he, talks to, he, says to, he says to Ben, he says, you know, not everybody can do this, and it takes a lot of skill and a lot of practice. And Ben says, well, I could do it. And he says, no, I know, no, you could. He says, come on, Tom, give me a chance to try. So eventually, <laughs> eventually he calms Ben into giving him his apple to pay him to be able to do the work. So he, next thing you know, Ben's painting, and other kids start coming along, his other buddies. And these guys are looking, and, they're, and they're all, before you know it, they're all paying Tom Sawyer to do the painting job. And he's collected, here's some of his, his things he's collected, his treasures. He gets two tadpoles from one guy. He gets a toy soldier. He gets a one-eyed kitten. 
And the prime prize, he gets a dead rat with a rope tied around it so you can swing the rat at the girls. (laughs) And here's how it plays out. Everybody's working like dogs on the wall except for one guy. Tom Sawyer sitting over here in the shade checking out his wares. This is how you help Tom Sawyer. You do the job. But that's not what's happening here. It can sound like it. It can sound like the idea is the Holy Spirit's now, he's going to take over the prayer. He's going to intercede. This is what it means to help, but that's not what the word means. The word help means to give aid to someone involved in a task. It's only used one other time in the New Testament in its verb form. It's here. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him, to Jesus, and said, Lord, you didn't, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Now, there are different things we can point out as, as misses in Martha's life, but nobody would accuse Martha of not carrying her weight with work. She was a worker bee, and she's not asking Mary to come and replace her. She's just asking Mary to come and carry her, her part of the freight. The word for help means to aid or to share in the burden. Paul talks of prayer as being something that the child of God is to do, and he describes it as the labor of prayer. He talks about being devoted and committed to praying. He talks about wrestling in prayer. They're active words. They're words that imply intentional practices. And what is promised in verse 26 and 27 is to people that are trying to pray. It is to people that are seeking to know God by talking to Him. To people that are seeking to influence their world through their prayers. He helps us, but it doesn't mean He replaces us in praying. Another aspect of this is that he helps us when we don't know what to pray. The Spirit, we're said, told in verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray. The weakness is we don't know what to pray. That's our weakness. The, the struggle is we, we have holes. We're missing. Now, this is a big deal. And it's a big problem because we know that God accomplishes things through prayer, and he, he is purpose that, designed that, and that it is through the prayers of his people that he accomplishes his work, and he promises to answer their prayers with this criteria, that they pray according to the things he wants them to pray about. First John chapter 5, verse 14 says that it, specifically, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked him. It's an amazing promise of prayer. He says, whatever you ask, you will be answered. God will provide. There's only one little tiny caveat. You have to ask according to his will. Well, here's the problem. What if you don't know his will? And Paul is saying, there's a lot of times we don't know the will of God. And he says, the Spirit is given to you in those times. There is a specific role of the Spirit, and we're going to talk about how this functions in those moments. Now, there are times when we can know God's will. We don't always live in a vacuum. There are times we absolutely know things we should pray for. 
The New Testament is very clear, giving us examples. Jesus himself said things to pray for. We know that we should pray for people to grow in the knowledge of God and his will. We know that we should pray for people to to better understand how much God loves them. That was a major prayer of Paul's, by the way. We know that we should pray that that people who experience the power of God in their lives, that they'll they'll grow in holiness and become like Jesus. We can know that that wayward kids that have wandered from God, we can pray for them to be drawn back. We know that God desires them to turn to repentance because he says those things. But what about those things that we're not sure about? And there's a lot of them. Things we're not sure are the will of God. Maybe there's a job opportunity. And you look at that job opportunity and you say, makes sense to me. I mean, it would relieve so much pressure for us financially. It would be less work hours, everything about this. And, and, but do I know that's the will of God for me? I hope so. <laughs> makes sense to me. My wife's excited. About, but do I know that that's the will of God? What about that relationship, and you say, I, I, man, I, man, I hope she's the one. I hope he's the guy. But do you know? Do you know that the timetable that you're supposed to be operating on to buy or sell that house, you know what you desire, what would be helpful, but do you know? Do you know when you get the medical report Even if it's a little case of the big C, and the report has come that cancer is now in your body, can you say with absolute certainty, I know God wants to remove this? I would suggest we can't know that. That God has things in our lives that typically we don't specifically know the answers to. It is in these and many other practical prayer situations that we find the relevance of this passage because we are still called to pray, to be praying. Paul says, pray in all things. Well, how do you pray in things where you don't know what to pray for? Well, Paul says, this is why I have this passage for you, Romans 8, 26 and 27. We find that the Spirit gives the right request to our longing for God. Verse 26, he says, the Spirit knows the will of God, and the Spirit intercedes with God-prompted requests. The Spirit knows the will of God, and he intercedes. Now, if you have a mind like mine, you are beginning to ask some questions, and maybe even feeling a little tension. You may say, okay, this whole thing sounds contrived. Here's what you're saying, Mark. Number one, God the Father wants to do something in the world or in my life. Two, he determines to use prayer to do it. Three, the Spirit knows what that is, so he asks for it. Four, what does that have to do with me? I mean, I get this. Okay, this is cool. God the Father ordains things he wants to do in the world. He has designed and purposed that he will use prayer to do it which he has clearly said he does. And the Spirit of God is is put in our lives, and here he is on earth inhabiting the, the, the lives of his children, the church of Christ, the body of Christ, and he is 
praying, it says, for God the Father's purposes to be done. Well, what does that have to do with us? How does that help us? We say, okay, well, that's great. I mean, that sounds a lot like Tom Sawyer's friends painting the fence, right? Maybe I am supposed to be in the shade and letting the Spirit of God do the praying, God the Father do the working, and I'm doing the applauding. Where do we fit in this whole thing? Well, that's what he's going to tell us about here in verse 26. But again, I just want to flesh this out a little bit, the tension of this. The Father wants to do something in the world, to start a new ministry to opioid addicts, to rescue people caught in the sex traffic slavery, to see a new hospital built in a third world country. These are all things God may be prompting and wanting to do, and, or maybe some things very personal to you. God sees the need of your forgiving someone who hurts you, and he wants to see you forgive. He designs for you to date someone who will help you in your spiritual journey. He wants you to accept the foster child into your home. And the Spirit knows exactly what the Father wants. And so he prays. What possible role do you have in that divine interplay? Well, that's what he's going to talk about in the next phrase. In the same way, verse 21, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes through us, for us through wordless groans. Now, there's a key phrase, verb, in this passage that I think is foundational to our understanding of this whole deal, and that is the word groans. And the simple question is this, who is groaning? Because it sounds like the Spirit's groaning, doesn't it? I mean, it sort of sounds like the way it's worded, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us through wordless groans, and, and some versions even make it sound more that the Spirit's praying, interceding with groanings. But I would suggest to you that is not actually who is groaning. And I'm going to show you why in a moment. And the wording is okay. The, the NIV is a literal translation. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us through, or I would suggest in the midst of, which is proper translation too, in the midst of wordless groans. That there's groans but they don't have words to them, as they say. There's no words. There's no verbalization because we don't know what to pray. We're just groaning. Now, how do you know we're talking about us when we talk about groaning? Why don't you think that's the spirit groaning? Two reasons. One lesser than the other. The first, the lesser one. Verse 27 makes it clear that who God is searching is, is us, our hearts. It's our hearts where all this is going on. But most importantly, the groanings of verse 26 cannot be separated from that of the verses before it. If there's one principle of exegesis and, and understanding, uh, interpreting Scripture, it is when you have a passage where a word that is very uncommon in the Scriptures that is used, and it's used twice, and then you jump down two verses later, you can be pretty sure that the way it was used in the first two verses is going is to follow a similar pattern. So let's look at this, this word groanings. In chapter 8, verse 22, it says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. In verse 23, and, and not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now we get to verse 26. 
For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings without words. Two realities of the groanings in these verses. Number one, they are not audible groanings. The creation is not groaning out loud. I mean, you don't go up to the trees in your yard and they're saying, why aren't you getting your bodies redeemed so we can get out of this fallen state? No, you don't never hear your trees groaning about that to you. It's a longing. He's not saying that Christians are walking around groaning every day, just groaning outwardly, verbally. You may be groaning because you're getting older and you got aches and pains, but but you're not groaning because you, you, you're just verbally groaning. You're on the, you know, you're on the, the speed line into Philadelphia. And there, why is that man in the back groaning? Well, he asked, well, I'm, I'm groaning, anticipating the day when, when I'll get a resurrected by and the, the white-coated people will show up. The, the idea is it's not verbal. It's not audible. It's rather talking about a metaphorical picture of longings, of intense, captivating hunger. And that's what's used here in verse 26. It's not verbal or audible groanings. It's longing. It's a craving. It's a, it's a hunger. And the longings of verse 22 and 23 are similar to the groanings and longings of verse 26. They are the hunger for all to be made right and all of creation to reflect the glory of God. They are the hunger for the first line of the Lord's prayer to be fulfilled, which when Jesus says, this is how you pray, he says, first of all, you pray. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. There is a, a longing, and if I could paraphrase those as the, the message does, our Father in heaven, show your greatness. Hallow your name. Your kingdom come. Set the world right. Do your will here on earth as in heaven. This is the groaning. This is the longing. This is what creation is groaning. That things will be made right. That, that, that God will, will superintend and bring all things to fruition. This is the groaning of the child of God looking for the future. That sin will be grown. That, that, that evil and suffering will be, will be dissipated. That all that will be left will that which brings glory to God he says, this is what the, the, the Spirit of God has given you a, a foretaste of. In verse 23, he's the first fruits of it. We long for that. We groan for that, he says. We come to verse 26. There is the longing for sin and evil and injustice and violence and depravity and prejudice and discrimination to be replaced by goodness and compassion to the glory of God. So what are we groaning about? For God and for God's name and renown to be exalted. For God's kingdom to come on the earth. That this longing is what he says. When we have that desire, when that is our longing, even in situations we don't know specifically what will fulfill that, we can trust that God, the Spirit, is specifically praying. So what does that mean? It means when you look at that house you want to buy or that job you feel you need to have, and you say, God, I, I'd love to have this. You know that's my desire. But I have something bigger than that. I want your glory. 
And this seems like a beautiful way for me to, uh, uh, for us to take care of our family, to, to have this new job, or, or, or to care for our growing family, to have this, this home with an extra couple of bedrooms. And it seems perfect, and it's in our price range, and it seems right. But Lord, I don't groan for that home. I don't groan for that job. My heart is not captivated with craving for those things. What I most want is your renown, is your glory, is the things that will help us as a family grow in Christ, is the environment where we will most effectively come to understand more fully the love of God for us in Christ. And so Paul says, if you pray and say, Lord, I'm bringing, you know, I'm holding loosely this request. My higher request is what I'm groaning, what I'm longing for. Here's what happens. The Spirit of God comes along and says, Father, you hear this guy's heart. You hear this girl's heart. And they may not be wording the request exactly as we want, but fulfill their longing. And I know how you're going to do it. You're going to do it in this case by not giving this job because you've got something more special for them. And Lord, I'm praying, don't give them the job. But do fulfill their heart's longing, their craving for you and your glory, and do it this way, this house, and, 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 and this job, and this situation, or allow them a few extra months of waiting because we see the beauty that will be brought in their lives. There's a real part that you're playing. You may say, well, I don't, all, all I'm doing is saying, I don't know, here it is, you cover it and then take care of it, God. No, we're saying, Lord, I really do believe that you use my prayers. I really do believe that you, you use me speaking to you, but I don't know specifically the specificity of requests right now. And so I'm just bringing this to you and believing that you're going to use my heart cry as the Spirit puts the right words to it, and you're going to accomplish exactly what will accomplish most effectively your glory my understanding your love, and my growing grace in the midst of this, and you building your kingdom. Here's what happens. Verse 27, he uses our longings to accomplish God's purposes. And he, God, the Father, who searches our hearts, knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Here's the, here's the outgrowth of, of, of this. It means you don't have to figure out what God's next move is and pray for it. You don't have to say, oh, the parent that's concerned about your kids, and, and, and you're saying, God, everything's dependent on this kid that's in their life, that's in homeroom with them, that rides in the bus. God, move that kid to China fast. <laughs> because my kid, I mean, it's just, he's going down the tubes. No, you can say, God, you're a creative God. And I don't know how you're going to shepherd my child. I don't know how you're going to be a shield around them. I'd sure feel better if this kid was in China. But I realize I don't have to figure out the yellow brick road for all my prayer requests, confident that God, you do this, and 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 I'm going to pray you forward, Lord, because I know you use my prayer. That's not what we do. We say, Lord, 
You want us to grow in grace. You want us to know your love. You want us to be holy people. I'm praying that. I'm groaning for that. I'm crying and sighing and craving and hungering that for people I love. But I know that you're a creative God. And I know that there's a spirit within me that hears my heart longing and he prays with a specificity that I don't have. And I can trust you to be working in ways and there's going to be more kids in my children's life that I wish were somewhere else. But maybe it'll be hanging around that guy that should be in China that will enable him to say, I don't want to go that way. We don't know. He's the creative God. And praying with confidence that you don't have to be the one with all the specificity in your prayer means that you don't have to figure out God's next move for him and you don't have to then pray him along the path. Somebody else is already doing that with him for you. It also means this thing with the Spirit is really alive. That the Spirit of God really does work in our lives. He's real. He's alive. He's personal. Many of you have had the experience of being awakened in the middle of the night and you're bolt upright and you have no idea and all of a sudden it's almost like an audible voice that's saying, pray for so-and-so. And you say, I haven't seen him in months. I mean, I have no idea what's going on. Pray for him. And so you obediently just get down and say, Lord, I'm taking a few minutes. Pray for him, whatever's going on. And then you find out a week or a month or hours later that they were in this tremendously difficult circumstance, and, 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 and God rescued them, and he used your press. The Spirit prompted you. The Spirit is at work. But what he's saying to us here is the Spirit works within us, within our longing for his glory to accomplish God's purposes, even when we don't know the specifics of what to pray. There are three vital principles of prayer I'd like to close with. And I will say, and Mike mentioned the Common Grounds booklet, the next two weeks, because we have baptism next week, so we don't have a section in there on Romans, the next two weeks are on prayer in the, in the Romans 8 booklet. This week is on this text in particular. The following week will be on praying Scripture. And some of what I'm going to share right now is in that, so I really do encourage you to use the booklet. The first thing we find, first principle regarding prayer, is that prayer is primarily response to God. It is designed to be response. We are called to talk to God in response to His prompting in our lives. C.S. Lewis says it this way in his section, The First Job in the book, Mere Christianity, The real problem in the Christian life comes where people do not usually look for it. It comes the very moment you wake up each morning. All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists simply in shoving them all back in, listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in, and so on all day. Standing back from all your natural fussings and frettings coming in out of the wind. He says the first thing we do is recognize we need to be listeners. Not talkers. Listeners. That the Spirit of God is within us and the Spirit speaks to us primarily through the Word. Primarily through the Scriptures. 
that the scriptures are God's speaking to us and the spirit of God leads us moment by moment, day by day to that portion of scripture that God wants us to hear. Prayer should usually be initiated by listening. Dan Henderson in his great book on prayer says this statement, whoever speaks first tends to set the direction of the conversation. I mean, that's just true, right? You walk up to a friend and, and whichever of you speaks first, maybe they're going to talk about the eagles. Maybe they're going to talk about the weather. Maybe they're going to talk about the political situation. Maybe they'll talk about what they learn in devotions. But whatever it is, you're going to respond on the conversation of where it got started. What the scripture reminds us is God needs to be the one that sets the direction of the conversation of prayer. John Piper says it this way, I have seen that those whose prayers are most saturated with scripture are generally most fervent and most effective in prayer. And when the mind isn't brimming with the Bible, the heart is not generally brimming with prayer. Prayer is designed to be a response to God speaking first. We respond. We respond, sometimes Romans 8 tells us, we respond just by praying generally with our hearts longing, believing that the Spirit of God is taking those with specificity. It also means that we allow him to direct our prayers, and you will find much more specifics you're praying if God is speaking his truth into you, and you're just prompted to pray, and you realize this passage is speaking directly to the very thing I'm feeling for this person I'm concerned about. Well, it's a spirit prompting you to pray with specificity then. A second thing that's true, prayer is participation in relationship with the triune God. Praying the scriptures encourages us to have a real conversation with a real person. I love this statement by George Mueller. George Mueller was a guy who had 10,000 orphans in England in the latter 1800s, no money, never asked for money. He wasn't wealthy, and here's what he wrote. The difference then between... My former practice and my present one is this. Formerly, when I arose, I began to pray as soon as possible and generally spend all my time till breakfast in prayer. At all events, I almost invariably began with prayer. But what was the result? I often spent a quarter of an hour or even an hour on my knees before I really began to pray. I scarcely ever suffer in this way. For now, my heart, being nourished by the truth, being brought into experiential fellowship with God, I speak to my father and to my friend about the things that he has brought before me in his precious word. It often now astonishes me that I did not sooner see the point. Praying the scripture also enables us to learn and use the language of the Godhead. This is a powerful statement by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We must learn to pray. The child learns to speak because the parent speaks to the child. The child learns the language of the parent. Prayer does not mean simply to pour out one's heart. It means rather to find the way to God and to speak with him, whether the heart is full or empty. No man can do that by himself. For that, he needs Jesus Christ. He's saying, you're, when you embraced and were embraced by Christ as your Savior, you entered a family, a family of a triune God that has been together for eternity. And he says, you need to learn how they talk to each other. You need to let them talk to you, and you learn the language as you listen he said, let God speak. Let God speak into you and then respond in the way he has spoken to you. And then the last principle I would share that ties most closely into Romans 8, 26 and 27 
is that prayer is prioritizing the reign of God in all things, both in ourselves and in our world. In ourselves, too often we pray to escape our difficulties rather to embrace discipleship in Christ. I'm going to say that again. Too often we pray to escape difficulties rather than to embrace discipleship in Christ. Our passion is for Christ to grow us and change us for his name to be glorified. Jesus says, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he says, okay, here's the groaning I want to be in your prayers. Father, your name be exalted. Your kingdom come on earth. Your will be done here, just like it's now being done in heaven. He says, that's the longing. That's the groaning. But we pray about personal problems that, and I don't mean we shouldn't do that, but when that dominates our prayer lives, we've forgotten that biblical prayers focused on Christ's purposes, not our problems. We pray for others. And this is where our priorities also need to be shaped by the Spirit at times for God's greatness to be seen and the world to be set right. Your name hallowed, your kingdom come, your will done. This is what is assumed in Romans 8, that we are praying with longing for Christ's purposes in the world, groaning for his glory. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying for people that are sick or infirm. Jesus was moved deeply with compassion for people that were in pain and suffering. And honestly, I'm using this quote with some deliberation, but I'm going to put it up there. We spend more prayer energy trying to keep sick Christians out of heaven than trying to keep lost people out of hell. Do we pray for people that are sick? Of course. Do we we feel people's pain when they've got the medical report and and are dealing with that? Yes. But if that's the focus of our prayers, we've lost the priority that ultimately we say, Lord, I don't know, maybe, maybe you want me in heaven. Maybe, maybe, maybe you don't have the priority of health, at least in this season. Maybe the best prayer that we can pray for each other in physical affliction is, God, show them how much you love them somehow. Deepen their walk with you, that there is a a passion for the glory of Christ and the purposes of Christ. And I don't think with this quote it's necessarily an either-or, but it is a matter of priority. This passage here in Romans 8 tells us we are called to pray. We are given the gift of praying. And in those many situations where we don't know what to specifically ask for, where we don't know what will most accomplish the purposes and glory of God, we can pray generally, believing that the Spirit puts words and specific requests to our heart cry to God. We don't have to figure out what God needs to do next and then next. The yellow brick road isn't ours to determine. The Spirit will pray according to the specificity needed to accomplish the Father's purposes. But we do pray with longing. We pray with a heart longing for God's glory. And in those things we don't know, and some things we do don't pray for, those things we don't know, We're given the gift of the Spirit to to take care of that for us, to put his arm around our shoulder and say, 
I know you don't know what the Father wants. I do. I know you don't know how God's going to be most glorified in this, but I do. I got it. I'll intercede for you on this. You just keep your heart oriented to the glory of God, the desire of God, the growing in the love from God. And he said, I'll work with you in this prayer thing. You are involved. You're not just walking the fence, sitting in the shadow. But he's there with you, praying according to the will of the Father. Lord, I thank you for the reminder again of just how intimate and personal is the Christian journey. That we're involved in an endeavor of the Godhead below us, in us, through us, and above us. That, Lord, somehow you're using our will to seek you and pray to accomplish your purposes in the world. God, help our passion to be your purposes, your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now go in peace to love and serve and enjoy the Lord.